0: With us today is Christy Ashwanden. She is an award-winning science journalist and a former elite athlete. She was a contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, Slate. She was previously the lead science writer for 538. And she wrote a book that is unusual for us to profile on this podcast and really excellent. And I really loved it. It's called Good to Go, What the Athlete in All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science Of recovery. Christy, welcome uh, to the Bregman Leadership Podcast.
1: It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So I loved the book. I thought it was great. And I loved it as as an athlete and as someone who works out. And I also really loved it for leadership because it's all about the science of recovery. Um, Most of us, many of us push ourselves really, really hard and, and don't recover. And then because of that, we try to find all these ways to recover that we're hoping are going to give us an edge. And, uh, and, you know, you've done a lot of the research in terms of what gives us an edge and what doesn't and what's kind of fake. So I want to talk about this from the perspective of an athlete and from the perspective of all of us, many of us who, who kind of push ourselves physically and then also, you know, as leaders and people who are going, 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 what really works in terms of recovery.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say, um, it was so interesting when my book came out last year, uh, beginning of last February, and I went on this very extensive book tour, I had like, I don't know, close to 30 events. And it was really nonstop. I felt like, you know, it it actually reminded me a little bit of my days as an elite athlete where, you know, you're never home. And it's another hotel room every weekend and, and all of that. But what I realized about Oh, a few weeks, I guess, into this book tour was that actually being a writer on book tour or even just being a working professional who's giving talks and having meetings is so similar to being an elite athlete in the sense that you're performing. And, you know, it's cognitive performance. It may be you know, there's a physical component, too, I guess, when you're giving talks and being present with people and whatnot. But in so many ways, all of the concepts and sort of ideas in my book really apply to the working professional as well. And I realized during my book tour that I was really putting into use all of these things that I had written about as an athlete. Here I was doing those, you know, as this writer on tour and holding these events and, you know, travel is just such an extreme stress on the body. And, you know, I was able to manage it because I was focusing on this recovery aspect.
0: You know, um, Harvard Business Review asked me to write a a travel focused article on a section that they were doing. And and I, I basically wrote this same thing. I basically said like when I was an athlete, when I was ski racing and I was going, I traveled like an athlete. I would go to bed early and I wouldn't drink alcohol and I would eat healthy and I would do all these things to be in peak performance. And then when I started to think about how most of us travel with business, you're out at late dinners with clients and you're drinking wine and you're doing all of these things that are the opposite of what you do. And if as business people, we traveled like we did when we were athletes or like athletes travel, we would probably be in a lot better shape. So I love the fact that that was an observation that you made also.
1: Absolutely. And I, you know, so one of the things that really emerges from all the research, so while I was researching this topic, there were sort of three ways that I went about it. One was I just took a very deep dive into the scientific literature. I read something like a thousand research papers, you know, really was reading journal articles up the wazoo and whatnot. Then I also interviewed coaches, athletes, trainers, all of these people, you know, who are working professionals in these fields from all of those different aspects to find out what they're doing, what they like, what they think works. And then the third aspect of this was I went out and sort of guinea-pigged a lot of these things. And so it was really interesting putting all of those three things together because there are many instances where I would notice that there was something where maybe the scientific literature was like, well, there really isn't much evidence for this, and yet athletes really, really loved it. And then when I tried it, I, I realized, okay, I understand the reason here, and it may not be something that we can prove scientifically, and yet it may still be something that's useful.
0: So I love that. And let's start with like, let let me ask you a couple of questions to set set the frame here. Why is it so hard for us to relax? Like, why is it so hard for us to like to to even broach this issue of recovery or try to solve for it?
1: I love that. Yeah, that is such a great question to ask, because. I feel like we are at this moment right now where we face this sort of relentless pressure to always be productive. And there's this sense of like, you can't just, you know, if you have a spare minute, you can't just sit there with your own thoughts. You need to be on your phone, reading something or consuming something or planning or producing. And, you know, here we are, as you and I are speaking right now, we're at sort of the beginning of this COVID-19 epidemic. And a lot of people are you know stuck at home and whatnot. And I'm seeing all these people tweeting or talking about, okay, so, you have some spare time on your hands. Now is the time to write the great American novel or to do this thing. And, you know, it's sort of like here we are in this really stressful time, and people aren't saying, oh, this is a time to like, spend some quality time with my family or maybe read that novel that I've been wanting to read or or like relax a little or take up that hobby that I was wanting to, to do you know at home no no we, we feel like we need to like produce something and we need to always be doing and I think that always be doing thing is a really really toxic sort of undercurrent that's pervading our culture right now and I think a lot of what I talk about in the book and sort of where I've come to as both an athlete and and you know working professional is that it's it's really, really important um, to just have some time every day. That's just downtime. It's, and I hate that we're at the point now that we have to do this. But, you know, I tell people, if you have to schedule it on your calendar, I don't want you to have to, like I want you to get to the point where you're no longer having to schedule it, where it's just part of what you do. But it's really, really important that there is time in every day that does not, there's no pressure to be productive. There's nothing that you feel like you need to accomplish. You can sit there and gaze at your navel. You can watch Netflix. You can do something really, you know, that does not feel meaningful. But the idea here is that you're sort of like alone with yourself. And I think that we've sort of lost that art of being able to be alone and to sort of sit with ourselves. And I think that's really, really important for creativity
0: yeah and I and I I I think it's the the very fact that we have these never ending to-do lists that somehow we have so yeah. much to accomplish that makes doing nothing almost offensive to our sensibilities yeah. right because it's like yeah. you're sitting here doing nothing like there's dishes to be washed there's you yeah. know articles to write there's the novel like <laughs> you know like uh, there was right. this um a New Yorker cartoon I remember where there was this man with his tie down and tired and 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 you know head in his hands and 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 there was an older woman at the door, and the 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 article of the title was the number one motivator uh, or the number one greatest motivational speaker. And it was obviously the older woman in this cartoon was his mother saying, please before i die make something of yourself it's like <laughs> this like drive to I say yeah. you know, like to prove our worth to prove our value to create you know something and in the face of not yet having achieved that and and by the way those of us who have written books who have done all this stuff still feel that pressure like i you know yeah. like i've written four books That's i've contributed to 12 others i've But I I still feel like it's very hard to just relax. That's one of the things that really attracted me to your book was because I put myself in that category of people who find it very, very hard to just do nothing for a period of time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I used to really, really struggle with this. And it was interesting. One of the sort of upsides of writing this book is I really did have to learn to do this. I mean, it wasn't just because I was testing all of these relaxation methods and whatnot. But I really found that as I was writing the book, my attitudes about these things really shifted. And I found myself sort of recognizing myself, you know, as I was writing about these problems that I was seeing of us, you know, never being able to relax. And you know, the problem that I was seeing with all of these athletes now is that recovery has become a thing, you know, in the book I say it's become a verb instead of a noun. Right.
0: You know, when I
1: was an elite athlete, recovery was sort of the state of being that you hope to achieve with all the things that you were doing. It was relaxing, it was putting your feet up. Now recovery is like, oh, you have to do this thing and do that thing and spend money and get you know, people coming in and working on you and doing all these things so that it's sort of the absolute opposite of relaxing. So we've sort of turned it into something that is, that is sort of its own source of problems.
0: So I have a theory about that and I'm kind of curious to get your perspective, which is people find it, it I find this about myself, it's easier to do something than it is to not do something. So it's easier for me to make sure I get my workout in every day than it is to not eat the chocolate chip cookie. And and right. uh, sometimes when I'm speaking I'll ask people to raise their hands it's like how many of you find it easier to do something than not do something. How many of you feel it's easier to refrain from doing something than, and usually it's about an 80-20 perspective. Like there's a lot more people who find it easier to add something to their list of activities so they're feeling like they're accomplishing something than to resist the temptation to do something. Have you found that also?
1: Oh, yeah. This is a very common bias. And in fact, this kind of uh, connects to something else. I do a lot of writing about medicine. And this is something we see in medicine a lot where we we have a very deep discomfort with sort of waiting, like watchful waiting. There's a lot of circumstances now in medicine where the, the best decision is to sort of wait and watch or to maybe not do something. But our impulse is always to do more. And like, well, I really need to get the test or do this thing when in fact, you know, So often when you're when you feel healthy, you really are and you don't need to go and do other things to try and make yourself, you know, feel unhealthy or find things that are wrong with you.
0: And in fact, sometimes when you're doing those other things, you know, you get more tests that leads to more tests. You're in the hospital. You catch a bug. You had nothing wrong with you in the first place. But all of this stuff ended up creating both a lot of cost, but also possibly making you sicker in the process.
1: Yeah. And I think that's really emblematic of this problem that I uncovered writing the book, which is that, you know, we've turned recovery, you know, it, and it's no longer rest and relaxation. It's this thing that you have to do and there are products to buy and, you know, routines and rituals to follow. And yeah, I'll just say here that I'm a huge fan of ritual, but I think the ritual needs to be some sort of relaxation ritual and I'm often counseling people that one of the most important things that you can do is to have a daily relaxation ritual, have something that you do every day that's part of your schedule. It's something you don't even have to put on your calendar or your agenda. You don't need a phone alert because this is just a, a vital part of who you are. Like pressure, Where you're your taking... teeth. Yeah, but it's a time meditation, during the day. like
0: 20 minutes of meditation, 20 right. minutes of just sitting and doing nothing. Take a walk.
1: Exactly. And, you know, I, I think meditation is great, but I also think that we have to be careful like if meditation's not your thing, that's okay. And it doesn't have to be like I feel like we have this bias towards wanting it to be something that feels bona fide or legitimate. So it's like, okay, I'm meditating. And everyone knows that's good. Right. And it's doing something. Whereas like I think meditation's great, but if you want to just lie on the couch and like stare at the ceiling, um, personally, I live in a beautiful place. I like to sit on my front porch and watch the, the sun set on the San Juan Mountains. Like, that's great. I can do that. You know, there's no I don't need an app for it. I don't need, you know, someone telling me what to do. I don't need to time it. I don't, you know, it's just, it's just part of what I do. I
0: I don't, I don't want to be too forward, but I'd like to sit on your porch and watch the sunset over the San Juan mountains too. (laughs) You know, like that That actually looks like a really, uh, a good one. Okay. So here's what I want to do. I want to play a game. I want to throw all sorts of recovery techniques at you. I know a little more about this game than listeners probably because I've read your book already, but, but I want to throw a whole bunch of techniques at you and you just tell me yeah, it helps or no, it doesn't help. And I know that's asking to be like totally black and white and you know, you can, you can offer some nuance if you think there's nuance, but to the extent that you could for the most part, like, sort of say, take this off your list versus put it on and recognizing, and I'll have one caveat recognizing, and you talk about this in the book, that there's a placebo effect that doing anything can sometimes help because your mind thinks you're doing something to recover. So let's take that aside for one second and then just say, you know, based on the technique itself, does it help you recover or are you better off letting it go? Okay. Rollers rollers you know the thing that kind of Uh, moves your fascia (laughs) and like you know kind of is supposed to loosen up your muscles
1: what i tell people here is if it's something people kind of fall into two camps they either love this or hate it and like pick your poison if this is something you love and you want to keep doing go ahead and do it if you hate it don't Feel like you need to do it we don't have good good evidence that it's there's not
0: good evidence that it helps but if you if you if you're the person who really likes the pain of sitting on a really really hard muscle, there's,
1: so this is one that's really complicated actually there's some suggestive evidence and it depends a little bit on the the circumstance and exactly what it is you're rolling Some sorts of aches and pains seem to respond better to this than others. But I would say that in general, it's not something that's a must do. And it's something that I tried. I hadn't really gotten into this before I started working on the book. I tried it. It's not something that I continue to do. I I didn't find it pleasant and it's not something I enjoy doing. But I understand that people do find it pleasant. And there's some sort of neurological reasons why this may work. So I think that um, there is some suggestive evidence, but we just don't have really good proof yet that it's something that's essential.
0: Great, taking vitamins every day.
1: Absolutely not, don't need to do it. No what one should about, be like, taking any vitamins or supplements.
0: Vitamin D, no vitamin D?
1: No. Vitamin no.
0: B12 no. for vegans.
1: Okay, that so there's a couple of exceptions. B12 if you're vegan, um, for women of menstrual age who are, particularly with their training hard or at altitude, they may need an iron supplement, right. but this is something that you should actually do carefully because um, there is a genetic disorder that that it's not very common, but it exists um, where some people um, you know, absorb too much iron and, and they have problems. So that's really something that you could a decision that you should make in conjunction with a doctor having done blood tests to sort of be sure. It's not something that you can sort of guess about.
0: Got it. And that there's there could be damage done by taking by taking there excessive could be, but vitamins. Also, but- and what surprised me what you wrote in the book is that. Like the standard American diet, which has very few fruits and vegetables in it, people are not deficient in any vitamins.
1: I mean, all of our food is enriched. Like It's very, it's almost impossible to be eating, You know, particularly if you're overeating, which a lot of Americans are. But also, I mean, the other thing, let me tell you this. If you're an athlete, you're training hard. I mean, you are eating more calories than the average person. You need to be. I mean, if you're not, that's actually a problem. That's a topic for another day. But you're eating enough calories, you're not going to be vitamin deficient. And even with something like iron, you're much better off getting that through food than a supplement. Your body will absorb it better. It's better utilized, et cetera.
0: Great. Stretching.
1: Nope. (laughs) People get really angry about this one. And I think, you know, this is something that's very ritualized and people enjoy it. And so I don't think it's necessarily something that, you know, I'm not going to urge someone to stop if they really love it, but there's just no good evidence that it helps with soreness or that it prevents injury, which is another thing that it's often said to do. How about like
0: warming up before exercise? Is that a smart thing? Like pre-recovery is what they call it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good idea to sort of ease into your workout. So you don't, you know, start your your workout with the the first thing being a sprint, but this doesn't have to be stretching. You know, it's just sort of a less vigorous exercise. So maybe you start walking instead of running from the get go.
0: And stretching after a workout is not important.
1: Nope. I mean, it doesn't really. It's if you're going to stretch, you're better off doing it after because stretching cold muscles, you're more likely. I mean, it is actually pretty easy to uh, injure yourself stretching. Right. Yeah. So if you like um, stretching also, as part of it, your
0: as part of your like. Like maybe for some people, stretching is like watching the sunset set over the yeah. San Juan mountains. Then you can do it because it relaxes you. But there's no recovery reason to do it.
1: Um, no, there isn't. Yeah. And there's actually some evidence that stretching might even impair performance on the short term. So right after you stretch, your muscles uh, become a little uh, tighter. I don't want to mis- mis- um, describe this. But basically, you have some performance detriments immediately following the stretching and it doesn't last very long but basically if you're about to go out and do a sprint race or something you don't want to be stretching right beforehand that seems pretty clear
0: got it okay so what what does work what do you know is useful for recovery and and you know for yeah. recovery actually mentally as well as physically
1: yeah I mean the number one thing and let's just say here nothing else comes even close the number one thing is sleep And this is something people kind of roll their eyes when I say this, because everyone knows that sleep's important. But the problem is that no one gets it right. And I think the real key here and the key insight and the thing that you can do differently is to actually prioritize sleep. So sleep needs to be as important to you and as sort of, you know, cannot miss as your most important calendar event of any given week. You know, it's something that you just can't skimp on. And people regularly skip on it. You know, it's just something that we we know we should do, but we, we don't. And I think that the best thing that people can do is to really figure out a way to make it a priority and to schedule their lives around it instead of, you know, right now, I think the inclination is for people to schedule their sleep around their life. But I think that, you know, you need to sort of do the opposite. In the book, I tell an interesting story about a, a WNBA team Um, That actually made some pretty big changes and it resulted in in some performance improvements. And what they did this was a team on the the West Coast, the Seattle Storm. And what they did is they said, okay, we're not going to have early morning flights. You know, when they go on the East Coast and have to perform over there, they're not going to get up early. They're just going to stay in the same time zone. And instead of having you know, an eight o'clock meeting coming from Seattle. No, we're just, we're going to let everyone sleep in until they're ready. And it doesn't really matter to us if that means that we're getting up late in the new time zone. And I understand that as a working professional, you may not be able to do this, but there are other things that you can do. And, you know, things like personally, I have decided that I'm no longer going to take those really early morning flights. I'm not a morning person. And I know that if I have to get up for one of those flights, you know, my sleep is disrupted. Not just that, that night but you know for several nights after that and it's just not worth it and so I say okay I'm not going to do that and making rules like that
0: and and people can do it like I I know a lot I'm a business traveler I know a lot of business travelers and we could choose to fly in the night before and sleep over in the new place as opposed to you know like we we people can make those choices you you really make a case and I'm curious if you have any specific advice for being able to do this to listen to our bodies and I think we're yeah. so disconnected from our bodies and our culture that that's a very hard thing actually for people to do.
1: It really is. And I think the other thing that's happened now is people have gotten so into data and like, look, I worked at Five I'm a data geek. I love data too. But the problem is if you're looking to these devices or watches or whatever it is that you're tracking to tell you something about yourself, you're sort of losing sight with your own body's physiology and what it's telling you. And how you feel, whether it's fatigue, whether it's stress, whatever it is you're feeling tells you so much more than any number on one of these trackers. And yet people have sort of delegated this really important task of figuring out how they're doing, you know, how am I feeling? Do I need more sleep, et cetera, to data? And data aren't the same as answers. And you need to to be sure that you're collecting the right information. You know, what is it really telling you? It turns out that the very best measure of recovery is actually mood. And just how you're feeling, you know, and I think we all sort of intuitively know this, like, who among us does not get cranky, and sort of, you know, fatigued and, and whatnot, when you're sleep deprived, we know this, and that's your body telling you, like, hey, I'm strung out, I need, you know, I'm overextended help.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I, I um, it's one of those things, like not getting enough rest that we tend to just push through we tend to sort of say, I've got this commitment, I'm going to work out, I'm going to do this. And yeah, even if I'm a little cranky, or if I'm not feeling well, or whatever, I want to keep going, because I don't want to miss this workout.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, in the end, it turns out that, you know, if you're pushing through to do a workout that you're not prepared for, because you haven't slept enough, you're really just sort of digging yourself into a bigger hole. And, and I think there's another thing that I sort of preach, which is a radical acceptance. So that's just sort of like accepting the situation that you're in, and doing the best that you can within those beings, because we have a tendency to sort of pretend that things are different than they are. And you can't, you know, you can't gaslight your physiology, right? Like if you're really tired and you're sleep deprived, you can't wish that away. And yet too often that's what we do.
0: Yeah, and it's it's like a little bit of letting go of this machismo of like superhuman, we could make everything happen. And I think when I hit 50, I started realizing that I was shifting from like this attempt to be superhuman to actually mm-hmm. just becoming like superhuman, like more and more human yeah. than yeah. than I've sort of thought I've been because my body's just not doing the stuff that it did when I was twenty.
1: Yeah, that's really smart. And I think that this is some place where leaders really have a, a role to play because I think when you are a leader, you're setting the culture for your organization. And you know, the the uh, basketball team I was telling you about those changes came from the coach, the coach down. She said, look, sleep is really important to me. I think it's important to the team. And she set a culture that said, we value this and we're all going to prioritize this. And I think that, you know, if you're running a company, you have an opportunity to, you know, set a high performance expectation culture for your, your business. And that isn't working all the time. I mean, the way to perform better is to, you know, set some boundaries.
0: I love that, and I think it's unusual. I think a lot of leaders push themselves really, really hard, and and so then actually end up setting the wrong example. And and you said something else in the book that I thought was super interesting, which is, you know, in in a world in which everybody's precisely. Uh, uh, using data-driven decisions to time exactly how much they're eating and when they're eating and how they're drinking and all this stuff. You're saying, actually, we do not need to be so precise about our nutrition, our yeah. hydration, the equations we use to optimize performance. It, it's actually much easier and more flexible than that.
1: Yeah. our bo- The human body is super flexible. It's capable of making do with, with a lot of sort of suboptimal situations. And that doesn't mean that we should you know, not try and, and provide it with a good environment and all of that. But we're sort of putting our energy and our time and effort into, you know, working on things that don't matter. And too often, this is done at the expense of the things that really do. So it's like, you know, weighing out your food or something and only getting six hours of sleep. Well, you know, the benefits you would get from more sleep far outweigh like whether you're eating this vegetable versus another one or, or that sort of thing.
0: It's great. I mean, one of the things that I really loved about this book and about our conversation is it's, it's a testament. It reminds me about how easy it is to make easy things complicated. And yes. <laughs> you know, in, in, in the end, it's, you know, you're giving a very simple message, which is, you know, eat, drink, sleep, rest, don't overdo it all. Like make sure you're getting rest and sleep and everything else is sort of fungible and doesn't have to be precise. And by the way, gotcha. don't track your sleep now to make sure that you're okay. getting super quality sleep because that right. actually draws away from relaxing sleep and actually just disconnect yeah. yourself a little bit and stare at the ceiling for 20 minutes and fall asleep reading a book and and don't like overcomplicate what's actually like a very human and very simple process of and 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 an unavoidable necessity, of yes. of letting ourselves recover from effort.
1: Yeah, I really like that way of putting it. And I'll just say, you know, a lot of the stuff it seems really simple, like just relax more and sleep more and all this. But you know, my book contains a lot of, I think, really interesting and helpful advice from elite athletes who've sort of figured out the details. Because even though these are sort of basic things, they can take planning and. And they can take thought to like figure out, OK, so I want to prioritize sleep. But what does that mean? What does that look like?
0: I, I loved it. Uh, we've been re- uh, speaking with Christy Ashwaden Uh, Her book is Good to Go, What the Athlete in All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Signs of Recovery. I would add that a subtitle would also be What the Leader in All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Signs of Recovery. How we treat ourselves, our bodies, and the people who are part of our organizations and our teams is absolutely critical to to how we lead. And so um, I, I, I loved it. I just found it a super interesting read too. you're a great writer, Christy. And oh, thank you, you so much. You know, you, you kind of approach the science of this in a really intriguing and interesting way. So thank you for writing the book. Thank you for being on the Bregman I Leadership appreciate
1: Podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.